Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Real Lit. I am here with Sam. What's up? Who's going to tell us all about some classic literature. And, of course, you know me. I'm Katie. I'm here all the time on all of our other shows. Uh, But I'm here to talk about some films that may or may not be considered B-movies. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they're just forgotten films that you haven't seen in a really long time. That shouldn't be forgotten, but, you know, with our overconsumption of media, it's very easy to get lost in the cracks. (laughs) You know, I was listening to And That's Why We Drink. Huge shout out. Love the podcast, of course. And M on it. Uh, I don't remember if it was this latest episode or if it was one of the last couple episodes, but they said something like, do you know that people say now that you were born in the 1900s because we're in the 2000s and I don't appreciate that? <laughs> it That's makes horrible. me feel ancient. That's horrible. <laughs> Why because would you do it's that? technically true. Why would you do that? Yeah, apparently the kids are like, hmm, you were born in the 1900s instead of the... The 2000s. I mean, well, fuck them kids. They're they're barely old enough to drink. Only one year of them is old enough to drink so they can go fuck themselves. (laughs) Amazing. I don't care. Amazing. Oh, you were born in the 1900s. Yes, I was. And you know what I can do? I can drive a car and I can drink and I can rent a car and vote. Vote. And smoke. I, yeah. Please don't smoke. All legal, don't smoke. It's, it's fucking not that good. It's horrible for you. Don't do it. I did it for like 10 years. It was not the business. It was not, it, it was not worth it. Don't <laughs> smoke. It's so bad. Zero out of 10. Don't recommend. <laughs> yeah. It's gross. And none of your friends will appreciate you. It's gross. You will always smell like smoke. And if you have to keep taking breaks to go smoke outside or whatever the fuck you got to do to smoke, your friends will hate you for it. It's real expensive. It is really expensive. It's so expensive. It's very expensive and no one has fucking time for that. And vaping is not any better. Don't it is really let not. all the garbage advertisers tell you any different. It's fucking the same. You're still fucking up your lungs. It just smells like bubblegum now and you're gross. Stop. <laughs> if you really want to do some dumb smoking experiences, go smoke hookah. No nicotine, not as bad. So you're not going to develop an addictive thing going True. on. Still and gross, though. It's super gross, but at least you're not giving yourself cancer. Fair. <laughs> yes. Avoid the cancers. Because, you know, we don't have universal health care out here, guys. Yeah. Like, you going to pay for your cancer treatment? Because I know you ain't got money for that. Nobody out here has money for to pay for fucking cancer treatment. Except maybe Jeff Bezos. Yeah, he's the only one. He could afford it if he got cancer. Everyone else going into fucking debt. Even celebrities going into debt because of fucking cancer treatments. Or fucking Musk's kid, asterisk, entero bang, underscore, <laughs> underscore, nine. I don't know what the fuck that kid's name is. <laughs> oh, what a mess. Okay. Today... We are covering, because it is spooky season, official lay, and I was like, hmm, what am I going to cover? There's so much spooky literature out there, guys. All the spooks. I'm currently, uh, I'm going to say reading, but it's not, I'm listening. It's audiobook. It's the same shit. Whatever. Okay. (laughs) Um, To a horror story that was not meant to be a horror story, but it fucking is. I'm listening to The Handmaid's Tale right now. And it's- 
it's depressing. Terrifying. It's not even really depressing. It's aggravating. Like, yeah, it, every two minutes. It makes you mad. Every two minutes, my heart starts beating faster because I'm just getting more upset. Yeah. At what the situation that the per- that the person is in. And I can't. <laughs> it's like doom scrolling, but it doesn't stop. It is. And I don't, like, I get why it's such well-known fancy literature oh, or whatever. Sure. And it's super important because, I mean, like, when yeah. it was made into the show, like, so many people kind of started seeing the culture yeah. around us and yeah. definitely opened a lot more people's eyes, which is great. Yeah. But it still but is it's, rough. It's so frustrating and some of the situ I'm only like I don't know twelve chapters and I've still got a long way to go, um, but the some of the situations that she's already talked about like the transition from being normal to being in the red uniform and the garbage that goes on I'm just like Yikes. how I would have murdered everyone around me like it wouldn't have been yeah I drugged you in the woods and now you're this nope absolutely. <laughs> I would have gone on a fucking rampage. So interesting. Aye, aye, aye. Sorry, I can't. We can't talk about Handmaid's Tale because <laughs> she's so upset. I'm very upset. <laughs> well, today's piece of classic literature is uh, not going to make you as upset. Good. Maybe it'll make you. Is it Lovecraft? Confused. It is not Lovecraft. <laughs> okay, Lovecraft. That'll be will make the next upset. time. That'll make me upset. <laughs> That's racist as shit. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That is a lot of, uh, especially when you are get into classics, the further back you get, the more and more likely it is that it's like, mm, yes, great piece of literature. Author was a racist piece of crap. But, you know, hey, great yeah. piece of literature. Um, so, unfortunately, yeah. par for the course. And if it's not racism, it's misogyny or both or more. I mean, still like that with more with- awful things. What I consider current literature, though it was 20 years ago now at this point, like Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. Like, fantastic books, fantastic literature, but J.K. Rowling's fucking garbage. Garbage. Just toss the whole author in the dumpster. Like, she's The trash. entire author. Just throw her away. She's garbage. <laughs> she made a great story. It's over now. We don't need her anymore. No. It's fine. <laughs> Just, you suck, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> Get your head out you of your transphobia ass. <laughs> Signed, Katie. Signed me. You fucking suck. All right. Today, in fact, it's funny that we talk about Harry Potter because there's some interesting Harry Potter-esque things that go on in today's story. Oh, I'm sure. We, she just stole from everywhere. <laughs> we are covering today uh, the tragical history of the life and death of Dr. Faustus. Uh, by Christopher Marlowe. This is usually commonly referred to just as Dr. Faustus is an abbreviation, basically. Um, and it's mostly what it's printed as, but the technical full name um, is a little longer. This is an Elizabethan tragedy. It is drama. It is a play. And uh, it's based on various German and other ancienter stories about a character named Faust. So it was written sometime between the 1589 and 1592. Um, it has probably been performed a, at least once or twice within that first year. And uh, unfortunately, Marlowe dies pretty much a year or so right after he finishes this. 
there are two different versions of the play um, that were published in the Jacobean era several years later after the fact. We'll get more into the two different versions of it later. It's not a whole lot, but... There was a huge sort of cultural response to Dr. Faustus. It had a huge effect on people pretty much immediately, and then it continued on for forever. Um, The legends just kind of quickly abounded, and it pretty much influenced and inspired artists forevermore. There is, in fact, a 1632 record where according to myth and legend there was a time that actual devils appeared on the stage during a performance of this to the quote great amazement of both the actors and the spectators and it apparently drove people mad in the audience um, because they were so scared of the actual devils that apparently showed up satanists out here just playing the world's greatest joke. I love it. So, uh, yeah, that is what you guys are in for today. A little tiny bit more before we get into the synopsis. So, um, in terms of the text itself, it may or may not have been entered into, like, a registry, basically kind of like copywriting, essentially, on the 18th of December in 1592, but the records are pretty confusing. Um, there's some conflicts over, like, the who the actual rights were supposed to be going to. Some of the people say that there were mistaken copying down of uh, the actual bookseller as opposed to who the actual playwright was, or the publisher in terms of that, or then the actual playwright. But... It is technically written by Christopher Marlowe, Um, and even the ones that were submitted for the registry stated on the actual manuscript, it was just stated that, and then the rights were getting written down to attribute to the publisher or to other people. The um, two versions that I mentioned, so there are two versions Uh, The one that I read and reviewed for today is the earlier one. We call it the A text. And then there is one that was written about um, like 12 years or so later, or at least recorded 12 years or so later. Um, And it has some like additions. It cuts some stuff out, but it mostly adds some stuff into it. Um, And it is a later uh, edition. And then there was some sort of controversy for pretty much centuries kind of trying to decide which one was the one that was probably the more closely associated with the original by Marlowe. Um, and it went back and forth, whether it was the A text or the B text current from what I know now is we are back to saying that the A text is probably the more, um, closely resembling of the, the original by Marlowe. So, um, and that is the one that I reviewed for today. So not just to toot my own horn, I believe that is the actual consensus that we have gone back to A, but it has been a very, like, they have been rivals forever to the death. Yeah. So without further ado, we are going to start our journey. I'm very excited. This is Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. So the beginning, we have a chorus that comes and kind of sets the stage for the audience. They introduce the story of Faustus to the audience saying that 
He's um, been born kind of of not super, super low class, but very not high class, you know, kind of basic. He's a, he's from a basic bitch sort of family uh, environment, but he is an incredibly intelligent uh, young man. And so he um, receives scholarship and eventually earns himself degrees, a doctorate eventually at the University of Wittenberg. And uh, they liken Faustus's tale here in the prologue to the tale of Icarus. If you don't know what the tale of Icarus is, Icarus is the um, ancient or sort of myth slash legend of the man who um, got wings, but he flew too close to the sun, right? So which was he was told not to do, um, because if he flew too close to the sun, the wings melt away. Icarus is Roman, right? uh, I believe so. Um, Roman or... No, Greek, because Mercury Mercury would have been the Roman one, because they were named after planets. Yes, probably. Yeah, so you're right. So then it would be Greek in origin. Um... But yeah, his tale is likened to that of Icarus, flying too close to the sun. So it kind of sets the mood for kind of what we're in for as an audience member. And after the chorus gives us this intro, they're like, and here he is sitting in his study. Let's see what he's doing. And Faustus is sitting there studying, basically, and he's just bored. Uh, Faustus's problem is he is a bored, too intelligent for his own good man. He is like, man, I've pretty much just like conquered every topic and subject that I've ever studied and nothing is interesting anymore. You know, he's every gate kid before they get into gate. 1000%. (laughs) Just sitting in class like this is too easy for me. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Like I covered this like five years ago already when I was in like second grade. Um, But he's pretty much like there's just nothing else for me here. Like logic is just stupid because people just love arguing. It doesn't do it doesn't have any real value. That's just what it's used for. It could be used for great things but people don't do it. Medicine Medicine can't fix death, basically, and that's all I'm really interested in. If we could be fixing death, then maybe I would be interested in it, but we can't do that, and nobody thinks that that's worthy of our endeavors, so fuck them. Fuck medicine. Law is... He is one of those people who I guarantee has a thousand lawyer jokes in his back pocket because he's like, law is beneath me. It's base, (laughs) basically. Um, and he's like, faith and religion? Yeah, I don't buy their bullshit. This is very, he says literally, religion is seems to be that of que sera sera. The whatever shall be shall be. And that doesn't sit right with him. He doesn't like it. Um, basically, he wants terms and conditions that he can negotiate, right? And so he's like, God, I'm just so bored. Nothing is interesting anymore. I know. I know what I'll look into. I'll be a magician. Perfect. I'm going to do it. My friends, Valdez and Cornelius, gave me some books. I'm going to look into these books. I'm going to be a fucking magician. And he digs it. He likes it. Are we talking a magician like a pull a rabbit out of a hat type magician or a magician like Merlin was a magician? Yes. <laughs> Both? Yes. <laughs> okay. All okay. of it. Okay. I can already see where this is going. 
He's getting into the dark arts, y'all. It's about to get bad. Yes. (laughs) Pretty much exactly this. Bring on the demons. Like, let's fucking go. Exactly. Dark arts. And this is not the first Harry Potter reference that'll be made today. So, brace yourself. Start a counter for yourself. That's ding ding number one. So, Faustus is like, hey, Wagner, his servant. Servant's name is Wagner. He's like, go get Valdez and Cornelius, tell them to get over here, I gotta talk to them. And Wagner's like, alright, yeah, whatever. And he goes to get them, and Valdez and Cornelius, who gave him these magic books and things like that, they are famous witchcrafters and famous magicians, basically. They're um, the Houdinis of their time. Yeah, they're known for being magic dudes, essentially. So when Wagner is going and getting Valdez and Cornelius, when Wagner goes to get Valdez and Cornelius, two angels show up to Faustus. They are titled very expositorily the good angel and the bad angel. Okay. The battle of moral conscience. Mm -hmm. Got it. And this is kind of one of the sort of older like origin references of the 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 devil and the angel on your shoulder mm-hmm. bit like this it comes from Faustus basically I think of Emperor's New Groove so <laughs> yeah when I think of also this, very iconic when I think of this like specifically of the the devil on your shoulder and the angel on your shoulder like your conscience trying to figure out what what to do the image in my brain immediately goes to Kronk mm-hmm. with the two different Kronks on his shoulders trying to figure out what the fuck he's supposed to do mm-hmm. um because it's hilarious it's so good it's like kronk is just the best kronk is the best <laughs> the emperor's so new good. groove first of all is superior to many films yeah. not just animated films films yes and it's... b kronk as a character potentially one of the top 10 greatest characters that have ever been made yep <laughs> patrick warburton plays an amazing idiot yes <laughs> It's just so good. It's very good. Um, yeah. So Faustus is cronking it up here. And the good angel and the bad angel come here to do essentially what you would expect them to do. The good angel is like, you shouldn't be going into magic. It's not a good idea, brah. You should be like looking at God and stuff. And the bad angel's like, fuck what you heard. Go be magic and shit, basically. And Faustus is like... Yeah, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to be into some magic. Yeah, let's do it. And so Valdez and Cornelius show up. They've been clearly talking with Faustus about this before. Like, they are, like, in it, and they've approached him about being a magician, like, with them, essentially, is what you can glean from the sort of talks that Faustus has with himself and with the angels, basically. And so they show up and Faustus is like, all right, you've convinced me. I'm in. Let's do it. And they're like, oh, hell yeah. Excellent. With you as a magician, we three are going to be literally the three amigos. It's going to be great. And so Faustus is hanging out with them. Meanwhile, his absence is sort of noted I guess, like, out in, I don't know, the general grounds or maybe, like, the scholars usually meet up at a certain point in the day or something and he's just not there. But his presence is noted as being absent by two scholars. 
and they're kind of like, yeah, where the fuck is Faustus? And so they see Wagner kind of wandering around, and they're like, hey, where's your master's location? And Wagner is kind of like, who wants to know, basically? And they're like, don't be an idiot. Where's your dumb master? And he's like, oh, you really want to know? You really want to know? And they're like, please shut up. Just tell us where he is. Um, and Wagner's like, okay, he's in there with Valus and Cornelius getting all magicked up, basically. Um, and just kind of, like, drops the ball on everyone. And... He's like, fuck it. The scholars are like, oh, that's not oh, good. Oh, no. Yeah, they're pretty much like, oh, well, fuck, that's that's not great. He shouldn't be doing that. So they're kind of like, let's go tell the rector at the university. Maybe we can pray for him, basically. He's a witch. Um, yeah, so they go off there to tattle, basically. How do you know he's a witch? Because he looks like one. <laughs> they can put that nose on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So that night, essentially, Faustus begins attempting to summon a demon. So he's alone and he's creating a magic circle and he speaks an incantation. And he, in this incantation, he revokes his baptism and like speaks against scripture and all of this stuff. And when he does this, at the end of it, a demon named Mephistopheles appears before him. And when he first appears, Mephistopheles is so hideous and scary that Faustus is like, please actually turn away and go and change your appearance because I cannot deal with that. Um, Turn yourself into a monk, basically. And Mephistopheles obliges and changes his appearance from his true form into that of a monk. And uh, Faustus is kind of like... Well, damn, you listened to me. I guess I'm pretty hot shit, basically. Like, I just told you to do something and you fucking listened to me. Like, I'm a, I'm the shit, basically. And Mephistopheles is just kind of like, what do you want? <laughs> basically. And Faustus is like, well, duh, I want you to, you know, serve me, of course. And he's like, yeah, I can't do that. I already serve Lucifer, obviously. So... And Mephistopheles also here reveals basically that, like, Faustus's power is not what summoned him, but it was rather Faustus abjuring or rejecting scripture and, like, sort of verbalizing his rejection of God and uh, holy things, basically. And that's what brought him to Faustus, because... When demons, I guess, hear that, they show up in the hope of claiming the soul that is currently rejecting um, being saved. So, essentially, Faustus just kind of, like, plays 20 questions here with Mephistopheles. He's just the most annoying person that you can tell Mephistopheles is kind of like, oh my god, why? Why am I here? Um, And just, like, asks him about Satan and about devils and hell And so Mephistopheles is like, you know this story. Like, everyone knows the story. Why are you asking me this? Basically, like, yeah, Lucifer's the devil. Yeah, he fell from heaven. Yeah, he torments souls now. Like, what do you want? What do you want from me? (laughs) Basically. Um, And Faustus is like, well, how can you be here if if you're doomed forever to reside in hell? And he's like, I'm still in hell. I'm in hell right now. And 
Faust is like, what are you talking about? He's like, hell is right here. It is all around us. It is not heaven. That is what hell is. Hell is not heaven. And Faust just keeps asking details, basically, to the point where Mephistopheles is like, okay, can we just, can you, shut up. Can we just get on with this? Like, what, what is going to happen here? <laughs> because I'm done with your questions, basically. And so Faust is like, okay, well, Mephistopheles, go to your master, go to Satan, and tell him that I want a deal. I want 24 years on earth, and I get you as my personal servant. I get to use magic and do anything I want, however I want, at any time I want. And then at the end of my 24 years, I will give my body and my soul over to Satan as payment. And then I will spend the rest of my time damned in hell. And uh, sends Mephistopheles off to take this message back to Satan. So Wagner... Meanwhile, we get a little aside where Wagner kind of goes off and he finds a little beggar boy like out on the streets and is like, hey, hey, you want to be you want to you want some money? I need a servant. You want to be my servant for like seven years for like the next seven years? Here's some money. And the beggar boy is pretty hilarious. His name is Robin. And he is just kind of like at first is very much like, fuck your money. I don't want I don't want none of this. Basically, like. This is some bullshit. So Wagner calls devils up to torment the kid and scares the crap out of him. And so these two devils come up and like freak Robin out. They're named Belial and Belcor. And after a while, Wagner sends the devils away. And basically Robin is like, what the actual fuck? Like, okay, I'll be your servant if you can teach me how to do that, <laughs> basically. And uh, it's very, he's very, this is very obviously comic relief kind of things going on here. Robin is very funny. He cannot remember any of the names of the of the actual devils that Wagner called. He keeps calling them random names. It is very much like, like Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, um, butternut cabbage patch sort of feelings yeah. of Robin just kind of can never get their names right. He's like, no, no, tell belly ache and belching dude to stay over there. Like he can never get their names right. Yeah. Then we go back to Faustus. Faustus is waiting. Um, and he's talking to himself. He's very obviously going back and forth about whether or not he should really be doing this or whether or not he should abandon this idea. He is afraid Essentially, it's very obvious from the words here and like how he talks back and forth with himself. The problem is, is that he's, he doesn't really believe that there's anything after death. It's either that or he doesn't want to because, I mean, it, it's a very humanist thing here, um, which is very Marlovian. Um, this is a, a theme for pretty much all of Marlowe's heroes of the idea of, mortality and being afraid of the fact that you do not know what's going to happen after death. Um, and this is true here of Faustus. It's basically, he keeps trying to convince himself and talk himself out of worrying about damning his soul because what is he worried about? He will never die. Y you know, it will never happen basically because there's nothing after death. So 
there's nothing, this is all there is. So that's why I'm doing this. So there's no reason to be worried, basically. And this is why he won't repent. If he repents, he has to admit that there is an afterlife. And that scares him because that's something that you cannot reach as a human. You never will, not until you're there, right? Not until you are actually dead. So rather than sort of kind of accept the mortality of life and sort of accept that uncertainty, this is a story of a man who kind of says, well, <laughs> uh, fuck that uncertainty. I will just rig the system then and make sure that I, A, never die and B, like, when my quote-unquote end does come, I won't ever actually suffer because there's nothing real. It's not real at the end, right? Um, so Mephistopheles comes back and is like, yeah, yeah, devil's into it. He likes your deal, um, but you have to write this deal up um, in a contract. You got to write the contract in your own blood. And Faustus is like, got it. Uh, not a problem. And he cuts his arm open and he starts trying to write this contract. His blood inexplicably congeals very quickly and stops flowing. So he can't finish it. And he's like, what the fuck? And Mephistopheles is like, don't worry, don't worry. I'll go and get a candle. I'll get some fire so we can heat your blood up and make it flow again, basically. And Mephistopheles does this and he finishes the contract. And after he finishes the contract, his wound inexplicably, divinely heals itself. And instead of a wound, words show up written on his arm in the place of the wound. And the word is homo fuge. This is Latin for man, flee. <laughs> this is so, so deus es machina, um, like to the max. God is very much like I'm being pretty clear, Faustus. You should not be doing this. And Faustus is like, man, this is really weird. What am I fleeing from? This is dumb. And ignores the words and gives the contract to Mephistopheles, declaring it. He reads it out to Mephistopheles and gives it to him. And we're live, baby. It's a go time. His deal is signed, sealed, and delivered. So he is officially now sold his soul to the devil. Faustus um, essentially begins by asking Mephistopheles a bunch of science-related questions, and this is kind of the nature of their relationship, pretty much in terms of the stuff that they talk about throughout the rest of the play. He just has a bunch, of, he just wants to know. He doesn't want to have to study things anymore. He's studied so much for his whole life and he's a doctor now. He just wants to know the actual real stuff forever. But the problem is you're talking to a demon. So it's not <laughs> like, you're not guaranteed that you're getting the actual real story here you're not from a demon. Get the truth. Yeah. <laughs> but Faustus is, has convinced himself that he is so smart that he has finagled it to where he will be able to always get the truth from Mephistopheles because he's his master. So he always asks him these science questions. Mephistopheles, like, gives him answers, but they're kind of pseudo answers. Like, if anyone is intelligent who is in the audience here, like, in any capacity, some of the, like, ways Mephistopheles answers Faustus in these answers, it makes it pretty obvious that 
he's bullshitting. Like, he doesn't really actually know what he's talking about, or if he does, he's being evasive, basically. Um, he's clearly just fucking <laughs> with Faustus. So uh, we have a little comic relief scene where Robin steals one of Faustus's books um, and tries to get him he like starts trying to make a conjuring circle because he wants to try and give himself power over women basically so that he can make women do whatever he wants which is chiefly get naked and dance in front of him um <laughs> so uh there is another uh sort of stable dude slash uh servant kid named rafi and he comes in and is like hey, I need your help with something. And Robin is like, get away, get away. You're going to fuck up my summoning circle, basically. And Rafi's like, what are you doing with that book, Robin? You can't fucking read. And Robin is like, I can too, motherfucking read. How dare you, sir, <laughs> basically. Um, and hey, don't test me. I'll let you in on this if you don't say anything about me taking the book from the big master and whatnot. And Rafi's like, well, in on what? What are you doing? He's like, I'm going to make all the women love me, man. Like, we're going to be magicians and we're going to be like fucking great and Rafi's like yeah all right cool we drowning in ladies <laughs> yeah basically and Rafi's like okay I'm cool with that so time is passing as these scenes continue going forth from here on out there's lots of time that is clearly going and moving forward this is not a like one minute then the next minute then the next minute kind of play um each time we see Faustus after this we're supposed to kind of assume more time is passing so the next time we see Faustus, he's still talking to Mephistopheles and he's asking him all these dumb questions. But it's clear now that this has become a rapport with them, that Faustus is constantly asking him and they're constantly having different discussions that are metaphysical and philosophical and astrological. He talks about astrology and the heavens and the planets. And we get to a question finally that Mephistopheles refuses to answer because Faustus is like, well, who made the world, Mephistopheles? And Mephistopheles is like, fuck you, that's who made the world. Because obviously the answer here, at least in a Christian society, is God made the world, right? But Mephistopheles is a, a demon, so he's not going to talk about that kind of shit. And furthermore, Faustus is like, dude, listen, I'm having some second thoughts and you being an asshole and not like answering any of my questions is pissing me off. Maybe I'll just go and I'll repent and I'll take away my soul. And Mephistopheles is like, don't, first of all, threaten me. Second of all, don't talk about shit that you don't actually have any idea what you're talking about. Because if you attempt to fuck with this deal, there will be consequences, basically. And Faustus is like, fuck you. I'll do what I want. And Mephistopheles is like, all right. And he leaves. And when he leaves, the good and the bad angels come back. They are back. So they do their shtick once again. It doesn't really change any of the times. The good angel is like, you should stop doing this. Yes, you should repent. And the bad angel is like, fuck this dude. You should keep doing what you're doing. God's not going to forgive you. You already sold your soul. You're a piece of shit. You know you're a piece of shit. Just keep doing it, basically. And Faustus is like, he reveals here that he's thought about killing himself um, in the midst of all this, but he is afraid of death. So he doesn't go through with that anytime he gets to that point because that is his huge thing that he is worried about. So the good and the bad angel leave. 
because Mephistopheles returns with Satan himself and the Prince of Hell, Beelzebub. Fun. And Faustus is like, oh, fuck. Because Mephistopheles, of course, has changed himself, right? To the appearance that Faustus wanted him to. Yeah, this is Satan. Satan don't give a fuck. So Satan is here in all of his terrifying, disgusting, scary as shit looking glory. And Faustus is not about it. He's like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, hi, my my royal highness, sir. Uh, what is up? Thanks for visiting. And um, Lucifer is basically like, I heard you were talking shit about your contract. Don't fucking do that or I'll fucking murder your ass. Basically, like, you are mine. You sold your fucking soul. You're a piece of shit. So don't be talking about God or any of that fucking shit anymore because it ain't for you, you fucking ingrate. And Faust is like, totally, you are 1,000% right. My bad. My total bad. My bad. I'm so sorry. I will write 10 more contracts right now. Just tell me what I need to do to make this up to you, sir. (laughs) Basically. Like, damn, I fucked up. (laughs) And Satan's like... No, nah, it's fine. You don't need to make it up for me. Just don't do it again. And Faust is like, done, done, and done. We'll never do it again, sir. Agreed. Absolutely. And Satan's like, cool. I've brought with me a show to entertain you, Faustus. So sit down. We are going to watch a little play together, basically. And Faustus is like, okay, what? what is this? And he's like, observe. This is the seven deadly sins. And... <laughs> The personification of the seven deadly sins comes out just to entertain Faustus. And so they, like, come to present themselves in turn. Think of, like, it's like the Von Trapp family when they go to sleep, except demons. Okay. <laughs> it is very that. Like so each one of them gets a little shout out. Yes, basically. Like, Who are you? Like, I'm me. This is Yo, I'm Lala gluttony Lala. and I like cake. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Basically, it's 1,000% that. It's hilarious. I'm here for it. That's amazing. So afterwards, Satan is like, do you like that? Was that fun? That that tickle your funny bone? And Foss is like, that was great. That was super fucking cool. Totally loved it. Best play I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. And Satan's like, great. Think of them. Don't think about God anymore or I will fucking find you and murder you. Have a good night. And leaves. (laughs) Basically only sins (laughs) and so um the chorus enters again after this and is basically like hey so um yeah time keeps passing faustus you'd think he'd start trying to like do something important with his life now that he has literally all the power in the fucking universe but no he wouldn't do that because he's dumb um right now he's going off to rome you want to see what he's doing in rome so essentially what follows pretty much from here on in between now and the end is Faustus and Mephistopheles just going to random places to do random nothing important shit. Exactly. So he goes to Rome. I mean, that's, you want to get close to the devil. He goes, Rome's where you go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, the closer you are to the start of religion, the closer you are to the start of Speaking, well, speaking of the start of religion in that capacity, he goes to Rome specifically because it's like All Saints Day or something. Yeah, he's going to like Vatican City or some shit. Yeah. He's going to fuck with the Pope. 
he wants to eat the Pope's dinner at on this like holy day or whatever. So he goes to the fucking Pope and he's like, Mephistopheles, I need to be invisible so that I can do what I want here. And Mephistopheles is like, absolutely, sir. Here you go. Here's your invisibility cloak. Just got it fresh from Harry Potter. And he puts the cloak on Faustus. And this it was is the 1600s, Faustus. right? This would have mm-hmm. been around the time that his ancestors had it. Mm-hmm. That they first got it from death. Mm-hmm. So this is Or maybe the- Mephistopheles gave it to Harry Potter's great Great, great, whatever the fuck, one of the three brothers, after he they did this shit in Rome. All I'm saying is, the invisibility cloak is here. It makes a cameo. This is old as shit, y'all. That's all I'm saying. Makes sense. Harry Potter may or may not be a Faustus. <laughs> so, Mephistopheles, like, here's your invisibility cloak, sir. He puts the cloak on Faustus. Faustus is now invisible. He's like awesome he goes to the pope's dinner and he just fucks with the pope he like takes the the plates out of the pope's hand and he fucking like hits the pope upside the head and all of this hilarious it's making me think of fucking uh in little nicky yes when his brother like possesses the cardinal or whatever at that big there's like some televised like church ceremony happening and his evil brother his most evil brother possesses this cardinal and is just like talking shit on god and like making stupid sounds with his face and Mm -hmm. like (laughs) it is very much like in fact i would not be surprised if little nicky was inspired a little bit by faustus some of the things that faust does so because it's very similar it's essentially him doing that he's just saying rude shit yeah. Like, but he's invisible, so no one knows where he is, and he's taking stuff out of the Pope's hands, and he's smacking the Pope upside the head. So much Which, so at that, this like, point, like, the Pope's gotta be freaking out, because there's, oh, like, a the holy Pope, ghost, like... It is a ghost, so the the whole thing is, like, he's, like, everyone is, like, oh my god, it must be a soul in purgatory that is here trying to torment the Pope, and so the, yeah. all the friars go off and get, like, exorcism shit, and they come back with their, with they're their like, like... Exercising the Pope? They, no, they're literally trying to exercise... Faustus out of the room and so he it, it's this whole thing of like did you ever see the um the movie that stars Reese Witherspoon and Mark Ruffalo and it is she's dead she's died in this apartment and Mark Ruffalo is the new owner of the apartment and so she is a ghost now and she's like fucking around in the apartment and he's trying to like exercise her out and at one point he brings a priest and the priest is standing in the middle of Mark Ruffalo's apartment like spraying the holy water and he's like he is so intense he's like the power of Christ compels you the power of Christ compels you and Reese Witherspoon is standing off to the side (laughs) just like with her arm cross like looking at him because he's not even hitting her and she's just standing next to Mark Ruffalo going like this is fucking dumb you better get your money back basically and it's very much that vibe like the the friars are walking around going like cursed be the soul who is trying to hurt the Pope and Faustus is just standing around with Mephistopheles like look at these fucking yuppies basically look at these idiots and they beat the friars up and that's the end of their time in rome that's hilarious basically yeah um it's pretty hilarious i'm sure everyone was freaking out at that time six 1500s right yeah oh yeah the shit is floating and some weird shit is happening around the pope (laughs) oh my god they're losing their shit yeah 
Um, at one point, so we assume Faustus is doing his own thing now, or kind of like maybe uh, has sent Mephistopheles off to go get something for him. We get a little break. Robin and Raffi, our uh, favorite young idiot magician kids, they are almost caught stealing. Um, so they have this little comedy scene where the guy who that they've stolen from is trying to get them to reveal the things that he's stolen and they're passing it back and forth from each other like, you can check me, I don't have it, where am I? And finally they get, they get away with it, but Mephistopheles shows up right at this moment and they don't know who Mephistopheles is, so they're like, hey, and they like start basically trying to give... Mephistopheles kind of like a rough time they're trying to be cute with him basically and Mephistopheles just is not here for it whatsoever and yeah, turns he's a demon he turns Robin into an ape and he turns Rafi into a dog and leaves <laughs> damn and that's the last we see of them basically so after this Faustus goes to visit the Emperor Charles V and Charles V is like, hmm, I want to see Alexander the Great, and I want to see his lover. And uh, Faustus is like, done and done. And he conjures up demons that look like them. And Charles V is like, oh, shit, like, this is real. Look at the mole on their, on her neck. That, that she had that. That means that these are the real ghosts, y'all. Like, wow, I'm super impressed. And there's a knight who kind of heckles Faustus and is like, God, what a fucking idiot basically he's one of those guys that goes to the magic show because he wants to try and be a smart ass you know what i'm saying and prove that the magicians are actually doing shit yeah and so faustus is like you're a piece of shit and puts the devil horns up on his forehead and boom the knight gets some cuckold horns growing out of his forehead and it pisses him off and faust is very amused and finally, Charles V is like, oh, God, okay, you had your fun, Faustus. Take those off of him now. He's learned his lesson. He won't bother you anymore. And Faustus is like, of course, I will listen to my emperor. And takes the horns off of him. Then he leaves on foot to return back home because time has been passing now. He's getting close to the end of his 24 years. So he starts wanting to go home. And so he's like, I'm going to walk home, basically on foot. Mephistopheles is like, okay, what I mean, are your other want? options? It's the 1500s. Well, I mean, he could he could go wherever you wanted at this oh, point. Oh, yeah, fair. He could just conjure some shit. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of like, oh, I'm bored. I'm just going to walk. So That's a choice. They have a horse, but he's just not using it. <laughs> Weird he's... choice. Weird flex, bro. And so as they're walking around, a horse courser comes up and he's like, hey, I need a horse. I'll buy that horse off of you for 40 bucks. And Faustus is like, yeah, okay, here you go. Take the horse. But hey, don't don't drive this horse into the water. And the guy's like, what? He's like, just don't ride the horse into water. You can ride him over a bridge. You can ride him wherever you want. Just don't get the horse into the water. Capiche? And the horse course was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Faustus is like, cool, take care. And so the guy like runs off with this horse. And of course he does the exact thing that he told Faustus he would not do. And he tries to ride the horse through a river or something. And the horse, um, disappears and turns into a bale of hay. And so the horse guy's like, what the fuck? I paid that dude 40 bucks and he gave me a goddamn bale of hay. This is the bullshit. 
So he goes back. I mean, by today's standards, a $40 bale of hay is cheap as fuck. And a $40 horse, that's impossible. Right. Um, So he goes back to Faustus. He tries to find him. He finds Faustus, like, sleeping in, like, a stable or a barn or something. And Mephistopheles is, like, keeping guard over him. So the horse horse is like, I need to see your master. And Mephistopheles is like, he's sleeping, bro. Like, calm the fuck down. You can wait. And uh, he's like, nah. He can't wait. I... Fucking, he fucking uh, cheated me out of my 40 bucks. He gave me a bale of hay instead of a horse. And he goes in there and Faustus is sleeping, just like Mephistopheles said. And he's like, see, like, just wait until morning to talk to his ass. And he's like, nah, we're going to talk now. And he tries to wake Faust up by yelling and Faust won't wake up. So he starts trying to, like, poke and pull at him to wake him up. And he pulls his leg and his leg comes off. <laughs> and then Faust wakes up and it's like, my leg! Ah, Mephistopheles, call the sheriff! Call somebody! My leg is gone! And so Mephistopheles is like, I'm taking your ass to the sheriff, bro! And the horse course is like, holy shit! No, 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 I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry! Please don't do it! Please don't send me in! Please, just, I'll pay you 40 more dollars right now if you don't turn me into the cops! And Faustus is like, fine, I'll take your money! Oh, my leg! And the guy pays him 40 more dollars and runs away... And Faust is like, all right, give me my leg back. And he puts his leg back on. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so ridiculous. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so now he has cheated that guy out of $80 instead of $40. And he still has his I leg. mean, the first 40 did wasn't really a cheat. He told him. Like, you got it's rules. True. He you didn't him. follow the rules. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Get mm-hmm. fucked. Mm-hmm. So... The Duke of Van Holt is his next stop because the Duchess would like some grapes. And they're not in season right now. Um, It's in January. And so grapes are like, it would be impossible essentially for her to get grapes right now. But not for Faustus. So Faustus is like, absolutely I can do that. Here you go, here's some fucking grapes. And she's like, holy shit. Because they're real grapes and they taste great, but that shouldn't be possible. And then Faustus is like, that's what being a magician is about, ma'am. You're welcome. Another customer served, basically. One more happy customer. (laughs) So finally he goes home. I'm surprised there was no strings attached to those grapes. Like, uh, don't eat more than 15 in one sitting or your head will turn into a grape. (laughs) Right, right. Definitely like a Veruca salt situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a there was some definitely some opportunities lost in that. No, Violet Beauregard. There we go. That's, she turns into a That's violet. That's what it is. Yeah. You're turning violet. violet you're turning violet. 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 Yeah. yeah. There you go. So Faustus finally goes back home. We are very close now to the end of his twenty four years. And back at home, Wagner is walking around and he says that Faustus has given Wagner all of his earthly possessions. And he spends all of his time partying now, basically. Like, party hardy all the time. So, his scholar friends who are here partying with him are like, man, you know what would be cool, basically? They're just hanging around. This is 1,000% a a stoner circle going like, you know what would be cool, basically? If, like, Helen of Troy was here right now and we could fuck her. And Faustus is like, that's 1,000% something I can do. Why didn't you just say so in the first place? And boom, he makes 
quote-unquote Helen of Troy appear. The actual Helen of Troy. So she is a very notorious, like, fade, like, she's definitely at this point mythologized to be one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful human that's ever existed, essentially. So the actual Helen of Troy or just a demon that looks like... It's a demon that looks like Helen of Troy. Okay, that's what I mean. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's quote-unquote Helen of Troy. And so the scholars are like... don't care. Let's fuck a demon. They're like, oh, shit, she's fucking exactly as hot as I thought she was. And Faustus is like... Am I right? Am I right? And they're like, you were right. It's interesting because the Greek and Roman idea of beauty would not have been the same. Like, what is the most beautiful is would not be considered the same necessarily as it was in the 1500s, 1600s, so. Yeah, but I mean, this isn't necessarily true to historical fact. It is the gratification of the moment. Right? Yeah. Which is essentially kind of one of the morals of the story is like, gratify yourself all you want. It's not, that doesn't actually mean that you're getting the real deal. I'm curious if she is dressed per, like, her own time or if Mm. she's dressed more to or built more to the standards of the time that they're in. From what I recall, I could check real quick, but I'm lazy as fuck. But from what I recall, um, there's not a lot of description in it, so Fair. It's just you like, can probably kind of do what you want. Here's with a demon. That. You can yeah. basically say like, "Oh, he brings her in." It is the demon that is looks like Helen of Troy, and so it was probably left up to the director in this regard of kind of like how they wanted to play that yeah. off. <clears throat> um, so yeah, the the scholars have a good time with Helen of Troy, and uh, Faust as they go off. The scholars go off with Helena Troy for a while, mm. and an old man comes around to the house, basically, and he tries to help Faustus repent um, and kind of accept God, and Faustus is like, oh, you're right, maybe I should just kill myself right now, and the old man is like, no, 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 I didn't say that. <laughs> Definitely not what I said. <laughs> just, like, repent, <laughs> right? Also, isn't that, like, one cardinal sin? Like one of them, yeah. So, um, at least in the Catholic Church. So, um, the old man's like, No, 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 just just repent. Just repent to God and you will be forgiven. And Faustus is like mm, <sighs> okay. all right. Well, let me think about that for a while, sir. And the old man is like, Absolutely, I'll leave you to your thoughts for a minute. I'll be back. And um when he leaves, Mephistopheles suddenly shows up and is like Bitch, you better take that back, sir. And Faustus is like, yo, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm not fucking meaning. I'm not meaning that. Um, duh. Uh, hey, though, I'm just like super depressed. I don't, I'm not happy that my time is almost up, Mephistopheles. And Mephistopheles is like, bro, you're my bro. What can I do for you? I want to make you happy in your, your final moments, your final days and hours. And uh, Faustus is like, I want to fuck Helen of Troy. That's what I want. And Mephistopheles is like, here you go. Here she is. And uh, they bring Helen back and he basically kisses Helen of Troy and is like, all right, yeah, this is what I need. This is what I want. This will make me forget all about the fact that I've sold my soul. And they go off to fuck. The old man comes back and sees that Faustus is gone and is like, God, you dumb bitch. Basically like, <sighs> Well, I fucking tried. And Mephistopheles is like, 
ah, you're the dude who was trying to take my soul away from me. And he brings some devils up to try and scare the old man, but the old man is very sure of himself. He is not scared. He's just kind of like, you guys are fucking jokers. Like, anyway, I'm gonna go. Peace out, you idiots. And leaves. Um, this is finally now. We are at the end. His allotted 24 years have mostly expired. We are on the last night. Um, nearly the last hour. So, Faustus is basically like, I've given up my soul for nothing. For like, nothing? He, 24 he, years of fun and excitement. Yeah, and he's essentially like, none of that mattered. Like, I'm an idiot. I can't believe I did this. It wasn't worth it, basically. Uh... I... It doesn't feel good. It, I thought that when I reached here, like, I would feel fulfilled. I would feel like I had made the right decision, and I don't. Um, so he goes to the scholars, um, his friends, and he's basically like, yeah, just FYI, guys, I'm gonna die tonight. So they're like, no. And he's like, yeah. And they're like, oh, man, thoughts and prayers, basically. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, you should do it. Are they even allowed to say that? (laughs) What? Thoughts Thoughts and prayers? Well, like, yeah, are they allowed to pray? Because... Oh, yeah, I mean... Aren't they always, like, sell their soul to the devil people? No, not these guys. This isn't Valdez and Cornelius. Oh, okay, okay, For all of the fact that they were like, oh, we're going to be the three amigos, they only show up in the beginning. They, like, never come back into the play. They just piece the fuck out. Yeah, they just piece the fuck out, basically. Um, Yeah, no, these are just his, like, fellow scholar friends, basically. okay. They've definitely been, like, benefiting from him being a magician, but they haven't done that themselves, Yeah, basically. So they're just kind of like, well, fuck, yeah, like, we'll pray for you? And he's like, yeah, you should do it in the other room, though, because, like, I got less than an hour at this yeah, point. Yeah, de- devil about to be you here. Don't you don't want to be, wanna be here. <laughs> you don't, don't want to be praying when the devil rolls up. And they're like, you're right, we're going to go in the other room, basically. Good, good call, bruh. Thank, <laughs> thanks for looking out, homie. And so he gives this whole speech, basically, about how he's damned. He eventually, in this final hour-long speech, and it is a very, it is a very sad speech. It is very clearly a man who is trying hard to reckon with the fact that he's been evil, he made the wrong decision, and that he doesn't want to be damned. He wants to be saved, and that's what he's always wanted, and he's realizing that that's what he's always wanted, but he, he still can't bring himself to actually repent to God. He seems to repent. But the w- way that Marlowe words his entire speech here, it's crafted very meticulously and clearly intentionally very pointed because he never actually repents to God or Christ themselves. He makes statements around the idea. He asks for mercy from Satan. He assumes that if he's not going to have mercy from God, then at least blank, right? Like he comes up with different ways and phrases to talk about how he doesn't want what's coming to him, but he does not ever get out the actual God, I repent, please save me. That never happens. Um, And that's a very obvious choice here because that is the thing that should, in theory, if that's what you believe, save him. 
if you ask and repent, you will be forgiven. That is the whole doctrine of Christianity and God and all of that stuff. So he tries to hide from God's wrath. He tries, he asks for the earth to swallow him whole and it won't. He cannot escape, basically. And Mephistopheles and Satan and all of the demons come to drag him off the stage. Um, his last word is him screaming Mephistopheles' name, basically. And that is the end of him. The chorus comes out and is like, yeah, that's the story of Faustus. He was all smart, and instead of using that power to be great, he was a dumb hoe. And that really sucks. The end. And that's the end of Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. <laughs> I mean, you sell yourself to the devil, and then you spend... You get what you get. You spend 24 years making other demons do your bidding, and now you became one. So now you get to be Helen of Troy and fucked by scholars for the rest of eternity. Yep. Basically, cool story, bro. So, yeah, um, the story of Dr. Faustus, Marlowe is basing this off of older tales. We know that very surely. This is the first dramatization that we know of, of the Faust legend, but it is based on older tales. In particular, there was a 1592 translation of an old German story. Um, the English translation was called the English Faust book. The actual earlier German edition um, from 1587 is believed to be lost now, but this would have been called Historia von die Johann Fausten. Um, this is probably actually even not the first iteration of the tale itself anyway. It may have even been influenced by an even earlier lost again equally lost pamphlet in latin so it is just a very old tale that has been sort of perpetuated over and over again throughout centuries um basically there are also some historical um figures that dr faustus could have also been based off of here, at least in terms of Marlowe drawing inspiration, because of the fact that this was such a mythologized story of the character Faust. Soothsayers and necromancers and magicians of the late 15th century all were very romanticized with that name, and so they would adopt the name Faustus as like their witch name or their warlock name. You know what I'm saying? So because Faustus is, is Latin. It's Latin for... Um, the auspicious or the favored one, basically. So, Which is weird. Yeah. Because he's not really, he's favored by Satan, I guess. Yeah, it's essentially, it's almost kind of like people discuss how that, it's like it, he's the one that was chosen by Satan to, he wanted his soul, so he made the deal with him, right? Rather yeah. than just take him. Um, also, people consider it the fact of saying, like, he was chosen in the sense that he had everything going for him. He was an incredibly intelligent man. They likened him to a Solomon, basically, of that he had everything. He had the looks, and he had the the brain, and he had the charisma and all of that stuff, and he wasted it. So he was chosen by God, but he gave that away, basically. So essentially, yeah, um, whatever the inspiration was... <laughs> Marlowe's play is very faithful to the Faust book, at least um, in terms of what 
we have as far as the English translation of what we believe is the German original pamphlet. Um, there have been many, many adaptations, of course. It is a play, so it's been um, performed a whole lot. Maybe the most notable, I would say, from what I could find out and from what I can also think of off the top of my head, is Elizabeth Taylor starred as Helen of Troy in adaptation in 1967. So, you know. What a role. Yeah. That's not the role I would have chosen. <laughs> yeah. Faustus has raised... Obviously, I'm sure people can um, understand here a lot of controversy, the interacting with the demonic elements and the the realm of hell and Satanism, etc. Before Marlowe, few um, artists and authors would ever really touch this kind of subject matter, right? After his play was kind of when authors and artists really sort of began to think and sort of experiment and expand on their views or their interpretations, right, or takes on the spiritual world and the intricacies and the nuances of that, um, rather than have anything always be completely 100% devout, right? So Christopher Marlowe, who's also known as Kit Marlowe, was baptized February 26th, 1564, he was, as we've said, an English playwright. He was also a poet. He was a translator in the Elizabethan era. He is among the most famous of the Elizabethan playwrights, second maybe only to Shakespeare. And that is a statement that is pretty loaded. We'll get back to Shakespeare in a bit. He is noted basically because all of his protagonists, I mean, among a bunch of things, but he's very well known. We would call this Marlovian in the sense of a Marlovian hero is a hero who is an overreaching protagonist. They always are an Icarus, basically. They, they reach for too much. They want more than what their lot is, basically, or what they should be striving for. He was the second of nine children. He um, was the oldest child after, unfortunately, the death of his sister Mary in 1568. He was born to a shoemaker in Canterbury named John Marlowe and his wife Catherine. And his birth was likely to have been a few days before his baptism, right? Um, and so that makes him about two months older than William Shakespeare, because they are born of the same year, very close together. So they are contemporaries in pretty much every sense of the word. By 14, Marlowe attended the King's School um, in Canterbury. He was on scholarship. Two years later, he went to Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. He studied on scholarship there as well. He received his Bachelor of Arts there in 1584. He mastered, in La he mastered Latin there. Um, in 1587, he um, actually earned a master's of arts, the university hesitated a warning it to him at first because there was a rumor, we're going to get into this, that he intended to go to the English seminary at the Rhines in northern France. Um, and this would have been to, if the rumor was true, this would have been for ordination as a Roman Catholic priest. And this was a problem because um, at this time, Queen Elizabeth I had some anti-Catholic laws in effect, basically. This would have been criminal. Any attempt by an English citizen to be ordained in a Roman Catholic church would have been um, criminal in Britain. So 
there was some hesitancy there, but he does eventually get awarded his master's. And the circumstances surrounding this feed into some more very interesting stories. So despite the implications for Marlowe, his degree was awarded on schedule because the Privy Council of England intervened on his behalf. They pretty much commended him on his faithful dealings and good service to the Queen. And in this sort of intervention, his service was not really specified. But the letter really invokes a lot of speculation in this regard, to the point that many people believe, essentially, that it's an indicate it's a strong indication that Marlowe was potentially a spy for the queen. Um, because there's the only surviving evidence of this correspondence is found in the Privy Council's minutes. The letter itself is gone. Um, there's no mention of espionage in, in any way in the recording of the minutes, but the write-up is essentially a summary of it. And it is very vague. And scholars pretty much are in agreement that the the way that it was worded, the vagueness, the phrasing that was chosen, and like the diction choices were likely meant to insinuate um, that they were protecting a government agent. And so um, there are still debates, basically, as to whether or not this was actually real or not, but the language used is language that is pretty typical of what they would have been using if they were attempting to sort of protect the privacy or the the nature or the details of a government agent's work. So there's not a lot known about Marlowe's adult life. And because of this, probably it deals even more into the leanings in of the rumors because the spy thing is a huge rumor. Um, he's also rumored to be a heretic. He's also rumored to be a magician as well. He was a smoker. Well, heaven forbid. Um, but he's also rumored to be a counterfeiter. And um, there are even rumors of him being queer. So the spying, let's cover that first. As I've mentioned here, he's an alleged government spy. Um, the people who kind of agree that this is the case um, say that he would have probably been recruited when he was in Cambridge. And they say this because there are like gaps in his education in Cambridge where like there's huge absences, which would have normally been a problem. But then he just comes back and everything's fine. And he's just like allowed to do that. And when he comes back, he's like spending the monies, like left and right. And this would have not have been something that he could have done on his scholarship earnings alone, basically. So people are like, where did he get all this money from? <laughs> um, what are these unspecified affairs that he goes off to do? <laughs> Why are they just letting him come back I and mean, they're not contesting any of this stuff? I mean, I could feed into some other, into one of his other rumors as an explanation for all of these things. Yeah. So lots of the rumors are pretty great and... I don't know necessarily if any of them really kind of even necessarily negate or mutually exclude any of the others. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So they consider the other reason that he 
is considered potentially a spy is they believe very strongly that he was probably the Morley that was referenced as Arbella Stewart's tutor. And if that is so, Arbella Stewart is the niece of Mary, Queen of Scots, and the cousin of James VI of Scotland. So at the time... Lots of money. At, yeah, at the time, Arbella Stewart was one of the contenders for the succession of Elizabeth's throne. So him being her tutor, like, he would have been spying, basically. That's what he would have been there for, right? Now, people say that they dispute this because they say that records technically have him living in London, so not as being present there to be Arbella's tutor. However, the records do have months that are unaccounted for in terms of his whereabouts, and there is some leeway there in terms of where he could have been in those months, basically. Hard to get to Scotland in those days, though. Yeah, um, unless you are riding on the Queen's Dime, you know? I mean, even then, still gotta cross the English Channel. Yeah. Scotland's on an island, another island that's not... (laughs) True. Can be tricky. Fair. And would take quite a while, because, you know, boat travel (laughs) in the 1500s. Fair. He is arrested a few times in his life. However, when he's arrested, he is often treated very differently than normal prisoners would be treated. Oh, yeah. He's often let go prematurely. Because he's white. And then his, like, issues are just kind of never brought up again. And he just keeps going about his life. Because he's affluent and white. <laughs> yeah. Um, they say in particular one, re- one time he is arrested in 1592 on the um, accusation of counterfeiting coins for these seditious Catholic groupings. So when he is arrested for this, they are, you know, they send him to the Lord Treasurer. But after they do that, no charge or imprisonment results from this. He's just let go. And people say like, like the arrest here may have broken up one of his spying missions. He might have been involving himself in this because he was essentially trying to be like an undercover to sort of infiltrate the followers of the the Catholic counterfeiters here and then reporting back to the Lord Treasurer. So that's potentially why when they sent him off there, the Lord Treasurer was like, that's fine. He can just go. You're good. Yeah. So Marlowe, in terms of his philosophies, he was reputed to be an atheist. Um, Not surprised. Yeah. Uh, and this, Based on this text, because if you were right. religious, you would get fucked over for writing something you like You would this. be scared to write it. There's the, yeah. That's the reason lots of people didn't write stuff like this up until then. Because people were like, if I want to write something like this, am I myself damning myself, myself basically? Yeah. Right? Um, so... This was a dangerous implication to be had here because, like, that would put him in enemy of God and state and country, basically. Um, There was a huge sort of rise in public fears at this time as well concerning atheism, um, referenced as the school of night a lot of the time. Anytime you see that reference, they're talking about atheists, just FYI. So um, modern historians consider, however, that this atheism, as well as the records of him being Catholic, as well as the the rumors of him being queer um, as well, may have all just been 
basically um, like sham accusations. So the reason that they say this is because it would have helped him bolster his reputation if he was a spy to have these sort of reputations because if you're reputed as an enemy of the state, you're much more or less likely to be considered as someone who's actually spying for the state, right? And also because when he was accused of this kind of stuff, it all of them kind of boiled down right back to one single person as the accuser here. And it is a guy named Richard Baines. So essentially it's the same guy that got in trouble with him when he got in trouble with counterfeiting. And it's a very he said, he said thing. Like, I wasn't doing it, he was doing it. I wasn't doing it, he was doing it. He's doing it because he's an atheist. No, you're an atheist. Like, that kind of vibe that's going on here. Um, so when Baines and Marlowe get caught, they essentially Tattle accuse each, each other. other. Yeah. yeah, right? Um, and Baines, like, throws himself into that really hard. He's an atheist. I, he, I hear him talk all the time about how he hates God, and he's always trying to get other people to hate God and all of this stuff, basically. Um, however... Um, there are similar statements eventually that are given by Thomas Kidd. We'll talk a little bit about Kidd's accusation in a minute, but we're going to move on here. So it's been claimed that Marlowe was queer. I would guess the guy that keeps uh, accusing him of everything else is yes. his lover. And that's why they keep getting caught together. Yeah, well... And they're trying to... Get each other in trouble for other things so they don't get in trouble for being in love. Well, the other thing, too, is is if you're trying to get somebody, if you're trying to accuse somebody and get them more in trouble than you, you want to throw the book at them, right? So the guy was really just like, he's an atheist and he's a Catholic, which does both of those things don't make sense together. <laughs> they should be mutually exclusive. He's a Catholic, but he's also an atheist, but he's also queer, <laughs> but he's like, uh, you know what I'm saying? But he's yeah. also like um, an asshole slut and he like tries and rapes women. Like all of the things you just throw all, it's like throwing the spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks kind of scenario. Yeah. And lots of like contemporary scholars basically say like you have to take all of these accusations with the idea in mind that today we would not consider these like really credible we would say like these are clearly so it's almost like a witch hunt um going on here for Marlowe. but outside of that accusation there is something to be said with the fact that Marlowe, in terms of his writing and his plays, um, he's most known for, not Faustus, actually, for other plays, in particular Tamburlaine. All of his plays have queer themes in them, and not badly. The queerness within his writing is always, honestly, not, I shouldn't say always, um, but I should say it is not put in condemning lights, which at this time would have been very, uh, it would have stood out. You're not resoundingly condemning queerness. So that's a statement to make there. And the fact that in most of his stuff, there is some sort of queer aspect that today, in particular, when you look at Elizabethan uh, you know, typical Elizabethan art and, and writing, etc. they stand out as, as examples of 
handling and references of queerness that are much more magnanimous than any of his peers. Um, Edward, he wrote Edward II. Edward II is notoriously gay as fuck. There's lots of other, um, just like things in his plays that really just kind of, oh, show that he was at the very least not, he was not upset with queerness or, or with queer people. And that was very obvious. And that's weird, quote unquote, for his time. Yeah. So people say, well, that must mean he's queer too, which is not necessarily true. It could just be, he, maybe he was just not queerphobic. Maybe he knew a bunch of queer people and was like, hey, people should stop being queerphobic. Fucks. Also, if he was highly educated in Greek or Roman anything, which seems like he is based on his text. Lots of queer There's things going on in that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. As it turns out, the Greeks and the Romans did not give a fuck. Mm-hmm at all about queerness it's a very christian concept yeah so yeah he probably just didn't give a fuck yeah and (laughs) rightly so because as we all know it shouldn't be a fucking issue he could have been queer i don't care like right exactly and if he was that's fine but the problem comes still what a hundred years away from a lot of prevalent queer authors coming to light. Right. And and owning that yeah. as part of their identity rather than attempting to hide Yeah, and it. he was just born in the wrong century. Maybe. Maybe. Right. And also, like, it shouldn't be a big deal if he was, he was. If he wasn't, he wasn't. Yeah, who the, cares? The problem comes with, unfortunately, back then, any sort of rumors of those regards, you always have to remember, come with the associated attached intention of back then to say someone was queer in any way would have been condemnation it would have been them condemning him so you have to consider the motives behind those sort of accusations because if they have motives to want to try and hurt that person in some way then you have to consider whether or not those accusations are accurate or whether or not the person making the accusation is just trying to hit somebody where it hurts yeah. You know, trying to get them down in any way they can. So, eventually, in May 1593, there were a bunch of, like, posters slash bills that were posted all around London. And they were threatening Protestant um, refugees from France and the Netherlands who had come into the city. And one of these was written in iambic pentameter. That's fun. And it contained... And difficult. Very difficult. So it's someone who's, you know, intelligent and probably learned. Probably someone who writes. And in it, it makes a bunch of allusions to Marlowe's plays. And the person who wrote it signed it as Tamburlaine, who is Marlowe's most famous protagonist in anything he's ever written. So, on the 11th of May, the Privy Council ordered his arrest. Basically, um... As one of the Marlowe's arrest? Yes. Uh, On the idea of this is suspicious. It looks like you wrote it yourself. You wrote it, or someone is trying to pin it on you, basically. So. Question mark Shakespeare? So (laughs) the next day, Marlowe, Marlowe's colleague, Thomas Kidd, he is arrested. When he's arrested, his lodgings are searched. 
and they find a sort of fragment of a little written like essay basically and it is very heretical and in this essay kid says in a letter to someone else that this belonged to marlo that marlo wrote it um what the fuck? basically and so kid essentially sells marlo out here whether or not it's true that's a question that can be had yeah but this is what kid says that this heretical essay was written by marlo so a second warrant is issued for marlo's arrest on the 18th of may um the Privy Council knows that he is staying probably with a Walsingham. Bec- and this is further proof. Many people say that he was probably a spy because Walsingham was the person that he was suspected to have been spying for or have been in the employ of. So the Privy Council knows that that's where he is. And it's weird that they knew that, basically. And the Walsinghams were... The fact that he was there in and of itself is is evidence because Walsingham was very he was connected to people who were very involved in espionage so Marlowe presents himself on the 20th of May he basically hands himself in but there was no privy council meeting on that day so he was instructed to continue to show up every day until the privy council basically finally takes him Um, so he does that however in 10 days on the 30th of May, Marlowe is killed. So rumors immediately abound. There's a huge rumor that he's stabbed to death, that he dies in a drunken fight. Um, and this is a very popular one even today. However, the official count account comes in 1925. Jesus. From a coroner's report. So they exhumed his body from 400 years ago. No, this is from when it happened. Oh, okay, okay. Two days later, after it happened, this coroner's report is written. Okay, so this is the first of June, 19, 1593. Excuse me. This is the coroner of the Queen's household, William Danby. Suspicious number one. Why is it the Queen's coroner? Marlowe spent all day, according to them, in a house with three men. One of them is named Frizzer. All three of them have been employed at one time or another with the Walsinghams. Witnesses say that Frizzer and Marlowe start arguing over a payment of a bill while Frizzer's sitting at a table between the other two and Marlowe's lying behind him on a couch. Marlowe snatches Frizzer's dagger and wounds Frizzer. And in the ensuing struggle, according to the coroner's report, Marlowe is stabbed above his right eye, and this kills him instantly. And the jury concludes that Fraser acted in self-defense, and within a month, he is pardoned of this crime. Marlowe is then buried in an unmarked grave in the churchyard of St. Nicholas um, immediately after his inquest, on the 1st of June, or 1593. So no one ever sees his body except these people. No one ever sees it after the fact. Sounds like a spy. Some pe- like he didn't really die. Some people, well, some people believe it and some people don't. Some people believe that either this is not how he really died or some people believe that he didn't die at all. Right? So I mean, I think he died eventually, but I don't think oh, he right. died Obviously, necessarily. Obviously, he's not still alive today. Yeah. But I feel like his death was faked mm-hmm. um, on purpose. Sounds like 
to keep with this spy concept, this idea that he was a spy. Sounds like it was just like, oh, well, your spying is in too deep. We got to fake your death and give you a new identity so that you don't get in trouble. We don't get in trouble. We don't start a fucking war. New identities. That's an interesting concept. Hold that concept. So there's various reasons why people don't believe this. Um, First and foremost, the dudes who are involved in this, who are the testimonies involved, they were literally known for being liars. Like, mm-hmm. they lied for a living, basically. So, everyone is like, nah, none of this is what really happened, basically. Yeah. Also, the fact that there should have been a second county coroner there with the Queen's household coroner. Yeah. The fact that there is not one listed as also there technically means that the inquest is not sanctioned yeah not official not official so that calls that into question so here are some rando theories about the real death of christopher marlowe people say that maybe uh the wife of walsingham was kind of jealous of their relationship this is plays into the queer aspect so she has him killed um he was very involved in sir walter relay's Circle, if you know anything about Sir Walter Raleigh, um, this is also a very interesting connection here. They they are notorious for some things, um, and people say that Sir Walter Raleigh arranged the murder, that Marlowe might, if he was ever tortured, incriminate him in some shit. People say that the Privy Council actually had him murdered because he was an atheist and maybe he would eventually... Because he was a spy, if he ever got questioned good enough, he could reveal that some of them might have been atheists. Um, Oh, no. People say the queen herself maybe ordered his assassination because of his atheism. Um, Possibly. This is one of the biggest accepted alternatives here is that Fraser himself murdered him, right? Um, Not in self-defense. It was actually murdered. Um, Premeditated. Yeah. And basically that... Whatever the motivation was, Freezer really did murder him. And it was not like a, oh, he attacked me first. Or the second more accepted slash favorite one is that he faked his death to save himself, of course, from trial and execution for being too atheist, right? Now, in that, he would have then, yes, absolutely, if he wanted to continue being a spy, have to have a new identity. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about that is Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare have a lot of interesting things in common. So Shakespeare, as I've mentioned, is a contemporary of Marlowe. In fact, the most popular Elizabethan writer is Shakespeare. Absolutely. Yeah. That is literally who who Christopher Marlowe is really only seconded by. And... It's funny because Shakespeare's plays, there's a lot of, at the very least, Marlovian influence, if nothing else. In As You Like It, for instance, there are copious allusions to Marlowe's work. Now, it alludes to his actual works, it alludes to his life and his death in it. However, in terms of influence or inspiration... Marlowe wrote a bunch of plays just like Shakespeare did, right? And there are some plays that Marlowe wrote that subsequently Shakespeare writes 
And they are very echoey of Marlowe, noticeably echoey of Marlowe. Antony and Cleopatra is very much Dido by Marlowe. The Merchant of Venice is very much the Jew of Malta by Marlowe. Richard II is super very much Edward II by Marlowe. And then Macbeth is very Faustian, very, very Faustian in nature, right? So people essentially say, because if you don't know anything about Shakespeare and kind of the, the, the sort of controversies around the authorship of at least some, if not all, of Shakespeare's work, a lot of people say Shakespeare was not the actual writer of the work. There's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. When people think is he just stole, either he stole from other people, or he paid other people off to write his shit, or Shakespeare was a one-stop shop where other people would put all of their works towards, and they would just off, like... They would write it and then he would present it as a work of his to get famous, basically. They would just like take their credit off of it and just slap Shakespeare's name on it and he would supposedly pay them for their works. Yes. So people have postulated that, hey, around the time Marlowe dies is around the time Shakespeare starts cranking out some shit. What if Marlowe faked his death? And not just faked his death, but when he needed a new identity, he was like, I'll just keep writing stuff, but I'll put a different name on it. And I'll wash up some of my other stuff and rewrite them a little bit so that I can still kind of get my older stuff out there and feel like I'm connected to my older self. But I am a new person and no longer have to worry about my atheistic like reputation and I can continue being a spy and maybe I'll just like make that person's name William Shakespeare but wouldn't the queen recognize him because Shakespeare was in with the queen but and Marlowe in this scenario he's faked his death because of the fact that he needs to continue being a spy so the queen would be okay with it makes okay got it the queen, in fact, would have sanctioned Would have this. helped, yeah. Yes. And basically would have then started focusing a whole lot on Shakespeare being, oh, look at great Shakespeare. Let's forget, let's forget who Marlowe is. Yeah. And Katie is, <laughs> for those of you who can't see, because this is a podcast, Katie has been looking up pictures of Marlowe and Shakespeare. And yes. Oh. The, Google is rampant with the point Marlowe and Shakespeare <laughs> being the same person. Or at least that Shakespeare had stolen Marlowe's work in some regard. That is the second, the second thing. People say, if he didn't fake his death and become Shakespeare, people say... Did Shakespeare have Marlowe targeted, potentially taken out? Because Marlowe was, again, very popular. He was very good at writing. Not just noted as of today. It's not He's not one of those people who were like, nobody knew how great he was. Now we read his stuff and we're like, oh, amazing. No. In his time, people loved his stuff. 
And he has the same penchant as Shakespeare does for understanding the nuances of trying to bring highbrow and sort of really sophisticated and important um, and philosophical sort of dilemmas and character issues to very lowbrow, down-to-earth audiences and peppering in his stuff constantly things that appeal to the masses as well as to an intelligent audience. They are very similar, and people find that just so very suspect because Shakespeare, you would think, is a -a one-of-a-kind sort of genius in terms of artistry. And the fact that someone was right next to him at the same time, in the same age, having very similar success in very similar ways. Just they they were literally very suspect. They were literally born two months apart. Mm-hmm. Same exact year, two months apart. Uh, Marlowe in Canterbury, UK, and Shakespeare in Stratford upon Avon. Yes. So. So, yeah, that is the other thing, is um, if Shakespeare isn't Marlowe, maybe Shakespeare was, like, that dude is That dude's got to go down. That dude's well, got to go. I mean, the iambic pentameter, like, thing, poster that got him shut down, like, that screams Shakespeare. It like, screams Nobody Shakespeare. fucking else was writing an iambic pentameter. You're the only one, bro. We know that it's it you. It screams Shakespeare. <laughs> like, we fucking know that it's you. And the other funny thing is Marlowe also used those types of things. Iambic pentameter? Iambic pentameter was a huge thing Marlowe did. He was He's most noted for the fact that he actually, in contrast to his peers, he would mix. So he would have in his plays, he does it in Faustus, times where there would be speeches and exchanges in iambic pentameter and times when he would slip into free verse. So he would mix them up. That's fun. And then when he dies and goes away and Shakespeare starts rising, he's kept the iambic pentameter and gotten rid of the and free verse. Gotten rid of the free verse. I like this idea. It's that... a fucking theory. I like it's this... a story who knows if it's true, but I, damn, I it's like, got some feet, is all does. I'm saying. But, okay, I love the idea that it's the same person, but my fucking God, if it's the same person. Yeah. Like, dude not only wrote all of Shakespeare's shit, but also all of Marlowe's shit. Like, mm-hmm. what a, a beast. The fuck? A fucking like, beast. Like, you for sure sold your soul. Like, that... Like, it, Literally, literally, the Faust tale is not. That's not fiction. That's a real story, sir. That's a real story about your real life because that is the most. That is just hit after hit after hit. That's you're the Stephen King of the fucking sixteenth century, and that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Stephen King had the help of modern technology and, well, relatively modern technology I mean, ter- and drugs. He terrified audiences in that place so hard they thought they saw real devils on the stage. Like, it traumatized them. One of the actors in that play that supposedly the real devils showed up, he was so fucking affected that he quit acting and became like a monk or something because he was That's like, amazing. oh God, I got too close to the I mean, devil. I gotta devote my life to God. I mean, that's amazing. 
But also, I'm very skeptic uh, <laughs> of all of this because people at this time were scared of fucking everything. The yeah. the idea that Satan was coming and like they were going to be damned to hell or whatever was so prevalent. They were so terrified. Yes. But everything. It was just like it it lasted forever. That like this terrified, like scared notion that we're gonna Oh yeah, spend, I mean it's still it, around. It's honestly. still around. It's still around, much less to an extent today. Yeah. But it lasted f- forever. Like so much so that when you study music, um, you learn in the 1800s and even in the 1900s, there are symphonies that were being made where the music was so dissonant. Yes. And so not happy, I would, I guess, for those of you who don't know music terms. Sad. Grating <laughs> or sad that there were literal riots at concert premieres because things were so insane consider like how you know you go to a fucking heavy metal rock concert and people are i mean you're listening to that death metal and you're listening to all of that fucking real depressing shit and yeah you're listening to it for a reason yeah it doesn't necessarily mean that you always constantly feel that way but there's a reason people were drawn to it. It's because everyone sort of feels that way, at least at yeah. some point in their lives. And it's the same thing, like, that was influencing composers and artists, uh, you know, and musicians and stuff back then. Yeah. They were just doing it in their genre, yeah. right? It's funny you mention that because it makes me think of Sweeney Todd um, and the fact that when when the first performance of Sweeney Todd ever happened, if you don't know the story of Sweeney Todd, it's a great story. You should check it out. I might cover the original story of it someday. It's really good. Um, But uh, the music of it is so viscerally dissonant and and, um, raw Mm -hmm. that when it first started, the audience members didn't realize that it was the actual, like, music for the play. They were terrified because they were like what is that holy shit like they were like is something coming is this the moment where the devil comes onto the earth because they purposefully created the composers did of Sweeney Todd they wanted something that instantly instigated that visceral sort of gut reaction of like oh oh this is not right this is not good (laughs) and that that feeling was born from Igor Stravinsky Mm -hmm. who in 1919 we're talking like barely 100 years ago premiered the Rite of Spring and when it premiered the audience erupted into a riot because it was so evil is what was commonly used at at the time like everyone Mm. was just like this is some devil shit. It ain't good. I don't know what it is, but it ain't good. And, and the the craziest thing about it for for me is that in 1919, a hundred years ago, it was considered just horrible and insane. And within 23, 24 years of its release, which is not a long time no. in the terms of art, like long form art, it. Yeah. It's not that long. No. In t- within 24 years of the premiere of that piece, the Rite of Spring was made into 
or was added to Fantasia, the original Fantasia in 1943, and audiences loved it. Like, mm-hmm. like it went from being everybody just, like, threw a fit and hated it to everybody loved it in the matter of 20 years, which is crazy because it's not typically how classical music happens. Either it's loved and worshipped forever or it's hated and everybody forgets that it ever existed. Right. So it's insane. But that's how you know you've got something that's sticking, that's that's here because uh, it does something that speaks to a certain human level of experience yeah. um, in art is the thing that when it, it hits, it initially erupts, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively, but it quickly is taken into the canon and uh, adapted by the masses. That is when you know that, I mean, it's the same reason that, like, you get the visceral reactions from, you know, generation to generation of, oh, kids these days and they're stupid music. And it's like, that's, the reason that you get that is because as people age, of course, their tastes you keep the things that you liked when you, it's not like when you hit a certain age, you stop enjoying things in the same way as when you were younger. Though it is kind of that. It, it You do, but also like, it's not a, it's not a hard reset. It's not a like, yeah. aha, I have suddenly become 30 and now I no longer care about Marvel. It's like, that's not really how it no, works. In those no, ways. but there, there are many studies that kind of suggest that at around the age of 30 is when you stop being able to enjoy, for lack of a better word, new music. Really? Yeah. There's like a time limit to the the new music and styles that you enjoy. Um, and that's not to say that there won't be outliers. Right, of it, course. With, you know post 30 like you're always going to stumble across a band who kind of reminds you or an artist who kind of reminds you of something else that you like it becomes more difficult or whatever yeah it just becomes a better statement there it is it becomes more difficult to like new music because you've already consumed so So much. much uh by the age of 30 and you've really settled into the things that you like about music and the things that you don't like about music and it's really hard because by the time you're 30, music has evolved so much from the initial music that you liked maybe when you were a kid um, that it starts becoming just music that your ears don't enjoy. Right. It's crazy. That's very interesting. It was yeah. a good conversation. <laughs> yes, somehow we got there from Shakespeare. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you're welcome. Yes. <laughs> All right, I assume we're done with we are the done. Faustian. That okay, Doctor Faustus. That's what. Spooky. Okay, so to keep with uh, the macabre, though, this was not really my in- like. I didn't know what she was covering. Um, <laughs> it just worked out this way. I covered a what I'm going to call a short story, though it is a short film. Right. This is different for me. This is probably the first short film that I've ever done on any of the podcasts that we've ever recorded. I get to put um, cherry. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes. I have done a couple of compilations of short films, but they're all like, it's all like Christmas shit. And yeah. it's like, here's like four stories about Mickey Mouse and Christmas. Mm. Uh, so this is my first true short story, and it is actually a semi-modern retelling of a classic story, Frankenstein. 
Yeah, bitch. So, so I am covering today 1984's Frankenweenie. Oh, so nice. So this movie came out in 1984. It was a creation of the now famous Tim Burton. Yes. It was his very first film that he ever made. And at the time when he made this film, he was working at Disney. It was basically his first job out of college. And Disney basically backed out at the last moment and were like, bruh, we're not going to release this. This is fucking weird. Like, you wasted a lot of time and money on this. <laughs> and what? We don't, I don't. How many no, times got Tim it. Burton ever get that in no, his life? Nobody got it. It was, it was weird, okay? Bruh, so, this is fucking weird. <laughs> oh, he's, he's. The a, epitaph on Tim Burton's tombstone. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Bruh. Period. This, this is, is fucking weird. weird. <laughs> Full stop. That's his epitaph. Exactly. That sums up his whole life. So, Disney, like, they finished the film, but Disney decided not to release it. They were they were going to attach it to another film. Okay. It was going to be, like, the pre-show or whatever for some yeah, other film. Yeah, yeah. But they decided not to because it was so dark and their test audiences, it actually scared children a lot because of the content. Um, And I'll get into that. I'll get into the content in just a minute. So Tim Burton, everyone knows him now. He's one of the biggest names in movies. After this movie came out or after this movie was done, he later, a couple of years later, went on to create the first of the, what I will call, modern Batman movies. Mm. In 1989, I want to say, they did the first Batman film, and he went on to later do three of them. And if you have not seen the Batman movies of the late 80s and early 90s with Val Kilmer and um, Michael Keaton. There you go. (laughs) Sorry, if you have not seen those three movies, you are missing out Tim Burton and his, like, creepy, horror, weird-ass brain put together the most perfect Gotham City that we have ever seen on film. And I won't say that those films are perfect because there are problems with the films as compared to the comics. There are problems with the films as compared, like, as we get later in the series or later in the Batman mythos. Like, it gets weirder and some of his stuff doesn't hold up. But as far as the city of Gotham and how just dark and horrible and gross it is, Tim Burton knocked out of the park. Yes. When Tim Burton became famous for doing that first Batman movie, Disney was like, oh, shit, we fucked up. Let's release Frankenweenie on VHS. Hello. It'll be a home release, and then we'll release it internationally as well. Nice. Um... As a Our short, bad. Our bad. yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we're gonna attach it to another film. It it wasn't like a cartoon film that they attached to. It was some other like Disney live action something or one of their something that was made. It wasn't. I don't think it was actually older audience. A, a Disney film. It was one of their subsidiaries, mm-hmm. um, which they had a lot of at the time. There's a lot of different films that they released Disney films under, right? Um, that didn't fit the quote unquote Disney image at the time. So they released it on VHS and 
it had pretty good success, I guess, for a VHS release. Um, and everybody bought it up because it's fucking Tim Burton. Like, yeah. at, at this point, he Tim Burton famous. became a household name because that first Batman movie just exploded whoa, in popularity. Whoa. So, Tim Burton got the call from Disney and was like, hey, we're going to release this, or we released it, and it's doing well. We'd like you to come and make another film that for call, us. That must have made him feel so good. <laughs> we'd like to, Jimmy, yeah, we'd like oh, to have you yeah. do another film for us. You know, the, by this time, it's like 1990 or something. And that is when the idea for A Nightmare Before Christmas came up, which is his biggest film, arguably. Literally one of the best films um, ever made. Yeah. So, you know, within all this time in the in the 80s and ni- early 90s, Tim Burton has done just insane amounts of things. I'm sure that you have seen at least one of his films, if not many of his films. Right. He's done Edward Scissorhands. He did A Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the one with Johnny Depp. Anything Johnny Depp's been in in the last, like, 30 Johnny years. Johnny Depp and Tim Burton are tight. Yeah. <laughs> Him and Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Ditto, Carter. Like, ditto his wife, Helena Bonham Carter. Ex- Ex-wife. Partner. Excuse. They weren't yes. ever really married. But, yes. So, he has gone on to insane amounts of success. But Frankenweenie was his very first serious project that he got to do all by himself. The film runs 29 minutes, but if you watch it on Disney Plus, it's only 26 minutes because Disney took out three minutes of material that was deemed, I don't know, too scary, too graphic. Who knows? So they took out three minutes of it, but it's 26 minutes. It's an easy get through. By today's standards, you know, we're now 37 years out. It is not scary in the slightest there's not like <laughs> little children that i like i watch little kids all the way down to five years old at this point they would be fine watching this film they might get a little sad yeah. um at the initial death that happens in it but they would get over it as soon as it you know comes back to life so now we're going to talk about the plot of frank and weenie so frank and weenie follows the the frankenstein family there is Mom Frankenstein, played by Shelley Duvall. Uh, her name is Susan Frankenstein. If you don't know who Shelley Duvall is, how dare you? Um, <laughs> you do. You, just you don't do. You, you just do. don't recognize her. <laughs> she is. Um, she was the wife in The Shining, and she was also Olive Oil in the Popeye movie that had Robin Williams in it. So you for sure seen Shelley Duvall in your life. Like absolutely impossible not to recognize her if you are a child. Of the 80s or 90s or 2000s. Like, you've seen her before, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the dad, Ben Frankenstein, played by Daniel Stern, who is one of the funniest men to ever walk this fucking planet. <laughs> um, if you don't recognize the name Daniel Stern, you should. He is fucking Marv from Home Alone. Uh. From Home Alone 1 and 2. He gets electrocuted by a washer. He's hilarious. Like, (laughs) Daniel Stern is one of the funniest fucking people on the planet. Okay, so those are the two parents. And then the son, Victor Frankenstein, who is the name of the Dr. Frankenstein from the original Mary Shelley text, is played by Barrett Oliver. And you might not recognize his, his name, Barrett Oliver, but 
he was Bastion in the Neverending Story. So you do recognize I that kid. It. Like I knew for it sure when you, I saw his face. For I was sure like, you that recognize kid. that kid. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. The Neverending Story. Yes. Oh so, my so god. right out of the gate, Tim Burton out here with a stacked cast. Okay? Yes, for sure. <laughs> like we've only hit just the family, like the first three people in this family, and that's it's stacked. Yes. So incredible for his very first project. So the film opens up on the family sitting down watching a film playing in front of them. And it's a film that Victor has has made of his dog, Sparky, being a dinosaur. The, the dog is like the monster of the story. And this is basically what Victor does in his free time. He creates little films with his dog, Sparky, about monsters and stuff and his family sits around and watches them every time they're done and it's really cute and his parents are really encouraging in his filmmaking and everyone's you know loving on the dog because he's such a good actor and he did such a great job um so they finish the film and then victor goes outside to play with sparky and he rolls a ball down his little sidewalk and sparky brings it back and he rolls it down a little farther and sparky brings it back and he rolls it down and it goes into the street and sparky oh, gets hit by a car no. we are like not even five minutes into this story like oh. sparky immediately gets hit by a car and dies <laughs> of course victor who was sparky's best friend is just beside himself he's only you know 10 at this point and is just like fuck my dog is dead and then they have a funeral for the dog at the pet cemetery and he's just incredibly sad doesn't want to go to school doesn't want to do anything his mom kind of forces him to school the next day i think it's the next day or the next couple of days and he is in science class and his science teacher is talking to the class about frogs and electricity basically how electricity affects your body and how your body is basically being controlled by electrical charges like your nerves and everything and how your body reacts to electricity so the science teacher pulls out this dead frog and it, and everyone's grossed out of course and he touches it with this little electrical rod and the frog's legs move and this mm -mm blows victor's mind and he's like oh, a tiny bit of electricity did that and the teacher goes on to say if i added even more electricity more of the frog's body would move just this little jolt is just affecting his legs if i added more it would affect his arms and different like you know more and more electricity will do more and more things to this frog and victor's like holy shit i've got it that's that's it that's the fucking idea right so Victor goes home and he starts collecting things from his house. We see him grab a bunch of smaller kitchen appliances. He grabs like the toaster and a toaster oven and all these different things. And he carries them up to the attic. And then he goes out and he's in the garage and his neighbor sees him and is like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and the kid's like, I'm cleaning out the garage like my dad told me to. And the dad's like, by taking shit inside? <laughs> he's like yeah, i'm just doing what my dad said and right. he pulls you know this box of like wires and strings and like just a whole bunch of shit out of the garage so victor is taking all this stuff up to the garage and or up to the attic and working in secret then he waits for everyone to go to sleep that night and he sneaks out of his house with a shovel 
And he goes to the pet cemetery and he digs up his dog, Sparky. He brings his dog home in the middle of a storm because now it's storming. And he has arranged his attic just like Victor von Frankenstein arranged his entire castle. Yeah. Basically. So he has, if you've ever seen the original Frankenstein from the 40s or even young Frankenstein from the 70s, 60s, 70s, um, you know, they use a lot of those uh, Tesla, like, um, Tesla coils and static machines to make it look like there's all this electricity in the air. Um, So there's all of that. And he has this rig set up in his roof. He has somehow cut a hole in his roof. They don't never explain it. There just is a fucking hole in his roof to his attic. Okay. And he has somehow, without anybody noticing, set up an entire swing set on his roof. <laughs> okay. And the chains of the where the swings would hang are what's holding Sparky. It's like Sparky's laying down on basically a flat board held on by swing chains. It's very, very creative uh, of Tim Burton to use things that the kid would definitely have access to and would think about using in this instance. So Sparky's laying on this board in the attic and Victor throws out a kite, essentially, to catch the electricity. And... The kite is so silly. It's like an umbrella attached to a, to a long string with another kite, like a bat kite attached to it because it's fucking Tim Burton. Like, he just got a thing. Bats. It's Love bats. Halloween. He just got a fucking thing for bats and Halloween <laughs> and creepy shit. So, Victor throws out this kite hoping to catch the electricity. Of course, he has an electricity rod He's and all these different things. He's got, you know, a metal swing set on top of his house. And he pulls the lever and it pulls um, Sparky up to essentially the roof. And then the line gets electrocuted. And all this electricity is buzzing around the, the attic. And he lowers Sparky back down. And Sparky has been brought back to life. Now, this isn't normal Sparky like you would imagine he was before the accident. Of course, this is now Frankenweenie Sparky. Mm-hmm. He has a bolt in his neck. He's got huge stitches all over him. He's patchwork, which is another Tim Burton signature move. Very much uh, a la Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas. He's got different sections of his skin that have been sewed back together that are like different skin patches that he didn't have on him before. Uh, Like he's very much an amalgamation of different dogs that (laughs) the kid would just like sewed together to make Sparky alive again. So, yeah, now he has his dog back, and he's super excited and happy because he's not sad anymore. You know, his best friend in the whole wide world is back. The next day, he is really fucking exhausted because he stayed up all night bringing his dog back to life. Yeah. And he doesn't want to go to school because he wants to hang out with Sparky. He can't leave his dog at home because no one can know that Sparky is back. Like, he doesn't know how to tell his parents that any of these things have happened. So, he gets his lunch from his mom, and he goes begrudgingly to school, quote-unquote, but he really just hides behind a tree and waits for his parents to go to work. And he comes back into the house, 
and he's hanging out with Sparky and they have a fun like morning together until Victor falls asleep because he's fucking exhausted. Yeah. He's a 10 year old kid and he stayed up way too fucking late. This is real life people. Yeah. This is what happens to kids. Don't let your kids stay up hella late. <laughs> it's just a bad idea. So when Victor falls asleep, Sparky walks out of his dog door because he's a dog. Yes. Um, and he walks, starts walking through the neighborhood, uh, you know, his old stomping grounds. And he goes into his next door neighbor's, no, he's hiding in a bush, uh, like, I don't know, peeing or something like that. But he's just like, sit, like, tucked behind a bush and a woman walking her dog walks by and then her dog starts growling because he notices that Sparky is there. And Sparky's just chilling. He's not doing right. anything. But the other dog is freaking out. And the lady is like, <laughs> come on, come on, let's fucking go. There's nothing there. So they go home. And then Sparky goes to Victor's, the Frankenstein's next door neighbor's house. And his next door neighbor is like in his shed, like grabbing something to do some yard work. And Frankenweenie like walks into the shed and just kind of stares at him. And when the guy starts to realize that he's being watched, he turns around and Frankenweenie just bolts out of the room. So the guy sees the creature, quote unquote, yeah. uh, run out of the room, can't really tell what it is, and is just like, what the fuck, dude? Mm-hmm. Who, why the hell was there a dog right there? And then Frankenweenie goes to, like, they have a smaller little shed area um, or little, like, pool house i would guess where the neighbor's daughter is sunbathing and frankenweenie rolls up to the window um and in this really cool like silhouette thing he's made to be a lot bigger than he is the woman freaks out about this giant monster that was uh, trying to attack her or whatever and it's just frankenweenie like he's a little american bulldog he's not (laughs) he's not big right like He's small. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she freaks out. The neighbor's freaked out. And then Frankenweenie's freaked out because the girl screams and he runs. And while he's running, they run into the lady again with the dog. And she freaks out thinking that Frankenweenie's going to attack her dog. And Frankenweenie runs home. Victor, like, wakes up at this point because all the neighbors are, like, screaming or, like, freaking the fuck out. And he's, you know, hugging on Frankenweenie. Like, you can't, you know, you can't go out. You can't be doing those things. Like, everybody thinks that you're dead. You have to pretend, you know, he's talking to it like a person, but it's a dog. You know, the dog doesn't understand. So, fast forward, uh, I don't know, 10 pretend minutes. um, (laughs) And mom and dad get home from work. And when mom and dad get home from work, all of the neighbors or the next door neighbor, his daughter, and the other lady... All roll, yeah, talk about all roll up on mom and dad and are like, your dog, like, if you got a new dog, that's fucking fine, but you have to make sure that it stays inside the house. It can't be, you know, terrorizing the neighborhood. Right. He scared my daughter. Uh, that dog almost ate my little Rufus or whatever the fuck. Like, right. she's flipping out about her weenie dog that almost got eaten by this other small dog. <laughs> so... Daniel Stern is trying to smooth everything over, and he's like, what are you talking about? We didn't get a new dog. You, you guys know that Sparky died. Like, you saw, you, you were basically about, here. Yeah. You saw it happen. You know that our dog is gone. And he's like, uh, no, there was definitely a dog, and it went in your doggy door, like, blah, 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 blah. And the dad's like, no, it's probably just, like, a straight cat that you guys saw. Like, it cannot yeah. have been 
It was just an alley cat. It couldn't have been a dog. Like, we don't about. we don't have a dog, and Victor's at school. Like, what are you talking about? So he's like, would it make you feel better if I went in and checked? And the neighbor's like, yes, it would make us feel much better. So Daniel Stern walks into the house and is, like, checking around the house, and he rolls up on Victor hugging Frankenweenie oh, no. or Sparky. And he's just dumbstruck, like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. But he realizes he has to go outside and still talk to the neighbors. So he goes back out to the neighbors and he's like, there's nothing there. It wasn't a dog. It wasn't anything like yeah. chill. I don't know. It must have been an alley cat. Gotta go by. So him and his wife go inside the house and they confront Victor about the dog. Yes. Because of course they do. And Victor pleads with them and tells them, this is just Sparky. Yeah. I brought him back to life. I He explains the whole process, everything that he did and how he brought him back with electricity and, like, in that lightning storm and all these different things. And his family is just like, Whoa. uh, <laughs> are you sure? Like, this doesn't seem right. Yeah. And he's like, just pet him. I promise you that it's fucking Sparky. And tentatively, you know, they pet him and he runs up to the mom, Susan, or Shelley Duvall's character, and licks her in the face. And she's like, oh, it is you. It is uh-huh. Sparky. Like, yes, we got our dog back. This is so cool. And this is going to be great. So the dad comes up with a plan. He's like, okay, well, we have to introduce Sparky to the neighbors. Like, we can't just let them keep thinking that this crazy thing happened because they're really freaking out. Right. So he invites the entire neighborhood to his house and they host like a little dinner get together, whatever, to meet the new dog. And the dad proceeds to explain the story of what Victor had has done to his neighbors. And his neighbors are just like, okay. are, what? Okay. <laughs> um, Victor and his mom are in the other room getting Sparky ready to be introduced to everyone else. So his mom is fixing up all the stitching because, of course, she's going to do a better job than the 10-year-old boy did. So she's, you know, repairing the stitches, making everything perfect um, so that he looks nice and perfect for this meeting. And then holding Frankenweenie, Victor walks out into the living room and he's prepared. He's ready to present Sparky to all the neighbors. Well, the neighbor lady who has the little dog sees Frankenweenie and freaks the fuck out like he's a monster just like they do in Frankenstein like oh my god it's the monster he's gonna eat us he's gonna do all these things and she freaks the fuck out and she causes a huge commotion and it scares the shit out of Sparky like it would because he's a fucking dog right and Sparky runs away he runs out of the house out of the doggy door and he runs away and Victor (laughs) upset as well runs after him his parents run after Victor. Yes. And the neighbor people are all like, that dog is a monstrosity. We have to go stop it. We have to go take care of it, basically. And they get their, like, little lanterns. And in the original Frankenstein is, you know, pitchforks and torches, torches and, and stuff. Like, they're ready to kill this thing. Um, that's basically what happens. So Victor runs after Frank and Weenie, his parents are running after Victor and all these, and it's just this long line of chase that happens in the original Frankenstein as well. Frank and Weenie escapes um, through this fence, this busted ass fence, into an abandoned mini golf course. And he runs into 
a fucked up windmill, which is straight from the pages of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like, that's where the monster goes to hide when the people are starting to come for him. And Victor squeezes through the gate and follows him as well. And he tries to comfort the dog like, I'm so sorry that happened. We just won't be around other people. Me and you can... Like, we'll just hang out all together. You know, my family has accepted you. We don't have to fuck with any of our neighbors. Like, fuck those guys. And his parents show up and they break the gate down. And they're trying to convince Victor to come down. Like, this is a raggedy ass golf course. It is not safe for him to be up there. Like, come on down. We will take care of this. You know, they're trying to reassure him. Bring Sparky. Like, it's okay. Yeah. Then the rest of the neighbors roll up and the neighbors, you know, they've got their torches and pitchforks essentially and are just yelling for them to come down so they can take care of the dog. And one of the neighbors who is carrying a lighter in place of a torch because this is like suburban 1970s, it's supposed to look like 60s, 70s. So he has like just a normal lighter. He trips and sets the windmill on fire so now frank and weenie and victor are stuck in a burning windmill and his parents are freaking out and all of the people are freaking out because they know that the kid's in there as well right frank and weenie like the kid is trying to get down the stairs or something once the fire starts and slips and like is knocked unconscious or something i don't know there's he's fucked up and he can't walk So Frankenweenie saves the day and pulls him by his shirt collar out of the windmill and saves his life. And all of the neighbors are like, holy shit, he saved that boy's life. Like, we're horrible fucking people. Like, that dog just saved that boy's life. God, I'm glad they realized they're horrible fucking people. And then the propeller of the windmill breaks and lands on Sparky. And he dies a second time. And Victor sees Sparky die a second time. My heart. So twice in like a week, this little boy has watched his best friend dog die. I'm so upset. His family is distraught over Sparky's death. The kid is losing his mind. And the neighbor who initiated all of this, the next door neighbor guy, is like, we can save him. The boy did it once. We can do it again. So they pull Sparky's body, they put out the fire somehow, and they pull Sparky's body out from under the pieces that he was in. And they set him in the center, and they circle him with all of their cars, and they hook all of the... <laughs> oh my god, and they jumpstart him? They jumpstart him <laughs> with jumper cables attached to his neck things. And they oh bring my god. they bring Sparky back to life. And they live a happily ever after. That's amazing. Okay, thank God. Because I was like, (laughs) this is some bullshit. I protest. I did not consent. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I was scared. So that is the story of Frank and Weenie. It is Tim Burton's first movie ever. um, And it is very clearly a retelling, semi-modern retelling of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Complete with fucking a mob of people trying to set pitchforks and torches to a tiny monster that they assume was going to hurt them all. And it really is a telling of how looks can be deceiving and how you shouldn't judge anything by its outer appearance because right. this is that's very much what happens in Frankenstein at least in the movie. I haven't read the book 
ever, but the original movie, Frankenstein was mostly a gentle giant. Yeah. And everyone just couldn't get over the fact that he was made of dead people and, like, lost their shit and killed him for no reason. So, yeah, Tim Burton knocked it out of the park. A couple of other people who ended up being in this film, just for a minute, there are two friends of Victor's that we see a couple of times throughout the film. And there's a young girl, and that is played by Sofia Coppola, who... Was Mary Corleone in The Godfather Part 3 and is a very famous director at this point. Yeah. Um, she's huge. And then also Jason Harvey, who is best known for being Wayne Arnold in The Wonder Years. He was the older brother in yes. The Wonder Years. Which Daniel Stern also was the adult Kevin, the narrator of Wonder Years. So yeah. fun connection there. Yeah, this movie is near and dear to my heart because I had it on VHS when Disney initially released it in uh, 1990, 1991. I don't know. I have loved this movie since I was a very young child because my parents got it immediately. And I loved it and I watched it nonstop. Again, it's only like half an hour long. Yeah. So it's just brilliant. Um, It is in black and white, just like the original Frankenstein. That was completely intentional, artistic choice by uh, Tim Burton. Yeah. And it's gorgeous. And this movie was so awesome, I don't know, important. And after Disney, like, took a look at it again, decided, you know what? Let's do it again. Mm -hmm. And they had Tim Burton come back to do a claymation style version in 2012 that was a full length feature film called Frankenweenie again and it starred some of Tim Burton's you know biggest hitting names including Winona Ryder who he's used in several different things like Beetlejuice and Catherine O'Hara who was in Beetlejuice and was Sally in Nightmare Before Christmas and a whole bunch of other things because she's fucking amazing so Yes, Frankenweenie lives on to this day. It did very well. The movie that came out in 2012 did very well and was just great. It was very similar to Nightmare Before Christmas. It's the same stop motion claymation style. And there is a fun theory attached to it that Frankenweenie would later become uh, zero. zero. Now, this is a... Disney Tim Burton theory that spans the course of three different movies. I guess it would start with Frankenweenie. So Franken the original dog dies, then it comes back as Frankenstein, and eventually the dog dies and becomes Bones. And that is the dog that's in Corpse Bride. Now, after the dog dies in Corpse Bride or whatever happens to it, it becomes a ghost, or its soul separates in, in Frankenweenie, and its soul becomes zero. Yeah. It's the, the idea is that all three dogs are the same. Yeah. And that the boy, is Victor the from Frankenweenie, becomes Victor from Corpse Bride, and when he dies and lives for a very long time, eventually he becomes Jack Skellington. So it's this very weird, like, there are a lot of twists and turns on how to make it work, but it's... Yeah still plausible ideas surrounding some of Tim Burton's best works. Love it. Yeah. So that's Frankenweenie. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. It's really good. Uh, Sam was getting emotional because a dog died. It's very emotional. That's the same reason that Disney did not release it. Kids were having a really hard time 
processing their emotions yeah. and dealing with the dog dying. I mean, it's twice. No different than fucking watching all dogs go to heaven. Fuck. True, but this is a real dog. And yeah. they don't ever show... What's interesting is that they don't ever show it. The way that this is filmed is very... Um, like when he gets hit by the car, it's first person. It's essentially like they put a little camera, the camera on, on a him. string. Oh, they put a camera oh. on a string in front of a car. So the car comes at the camera. So you're getting it... You're getting the hit, quote unquote, from the camera's point of view. Like you're the dog. But no. they, you know, they don't sh- ever show the dog get hit. Right. It's just like, you see the dog run and then you see his right. viewpoint real quick getting hit. Right. And then that's it. And it's later when he dies from the thing, you see him, you see the thing fall on him. But it's like, like because it's in black and white, it's hard to tell that it's fake, but it's fake. Like right. they wouldn't let a dog actually get hit by a burning, a th- yeah, a falling burning thing. So, yeah, go check out Frank and Weenie. Like I said, it's only half an hour long. It's on Disney+. Plus. Uh, you can also rent it from, I think, Amazon Prime has it to rent, but it's going to cost you, like, four bucks. It's really good, and you should definitely watch it before you watch the full-length Frank and Weenie because you really get an idea of where Tim Burton was coming from when he came up with this idea yeah. in the 80s. To create this film. And it wasn't until way, way, way after he had made, you know, 47 films for Disney uh, and billions of dollars for Disney that they were like, you know what? Let's revisit Frank and Weenie. That was a good idea. Let's do it. So, yeah, you should check out Frank and Weenie. It's really good. Amazing. Oh, yeah, that. (laughs) All right. Listen, I wasn't thinking of it in my head for it to go to waste. Faustus, seven word synopsis. Fuck around with demons and find out. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, let's see. Become a magician, fake death, become Shakespeare. Yes. Nice. <laughs> Got some Marlovian uh, history. Yeah, mixed up just in there like, like fuck it. <laughs> I don't know. Enjoy life. Who All cares? Right. There was a lot of rules. There was too many rules. That <laughs> were. It, it was a lot. Frank All right. For Frank and Weenie. Okay. Mind your own business, nosy ass neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Tim Burton does Mary Shelley with dog. Yes. That's perfect. That's what this that's is. Literally it's so it. good. That's exactly it. <laughs> it's so good. And I love the story of Frankenstein or the movies of Frankenstein. Yeah. He's a really good misunderstood villain. His name is not Frankenstein, by the way. Yes, he it's Frankenstein's, Frankenstein's monster. monster. The the doctor who created him is Frankenstein, which is why Victor's last name is Frankenstein. It's yes. like the whole thing. But yes, the, all of the lore surrounding Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster is fantastic. And every iteration, well, I can't even say that because I haven't seen a couple of them and I know some of them are poop, but many <laughs> of the iterations of the Frankenstein story are great, Yeah. Uh, including but not limited to Young Frankenstein, which we did review on the Spooky Movie Squad, Absolutely. as well as a couple of the other Frankenstein films. Go check those out. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. Speaking of wherever you listen to podcasts, you should go and like and subscribe to Allentown Presents Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Because, yeah, uh, definitely the best thing you can do 
to help and support us is uh, by clicking that like button, subscribing, leaving a rating and review. It helps the algorithms on any platform that you listen to podcasts on. Let them know that we uh, are worth listening to and that people like to hear us. So they boost us and spread us around more. Yeah. On top of that, if you have any questions or comments or concerns uh, about what you hear today or have any suggestions for other books or movies that we should be reading and watching and talking about, uh, let us know. You can hit us up at AllentownPod on Twitter. You can email us at AllentownPresents at gmail.com or we have a Facebook at AllentownPresents, which is where you can now also play our podcast because that's a new feature. Thanks, Facebook. Absolutely. Do you think Christopher Marlowe was really Shakespeare? Leave us your theory on a comment. I don't know, but I want him to be. (laughs) I think that's hilarious. And it makes uh, the musical Something Rotten that much funnier. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so good. Mm -hmm. Go check out Something Rotten if you haven't. It's hilarious. I will always hype that musical up. Um, yeah, so we want to give a huge shout out to our artist, Susan Dorda. Thank you so much for our awesome artwork. We're going to shout you out every episode. Uh, you can check her work out at SusanDorda.com. That's S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com. Yeah, thank you so much for listening to us, and we hope you have an awesome rest of your week. Happy spooky season. Yeah, and... We'll see you again soon for another episode. Hashtag literaturely. Bye. Bye.